So the, the book of Philippians is, is um, uh, a, a letter about looking for joy. And it's a letter about finding joy. And finding joy um, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And, and we said last week we were created for joy. And if we miss it, then we miss the reason for our entire existence. But if, if we have honest joy, that honest joy has to be somehow congruous with pain and with suffering. And so we said last week that the journey towards joy begins with confidence that God is working even when it seems like life isn't working. To put it another way, Walter Knight said it this way, joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts announcing that the king is in residence today. And I think that that's awesome. I, um, uh, remember back to when I was entering seminary, Tanya and I had been married. I had taken a break from, from seminary while we went through the whole wedding planning and all that kind of thing. And so um, as we were kind of looking at this new thing, we were newly married and I was going to go back to school. Uh, Tanya was a little bit nervous and rightly so. And so I made her three promises. I promised her uh, when we're finished, I, we will still be married. Um, and second, we're not going to take on any debt. We, uh, I had seen the statistics of Dallas Seminary students who continued to just live in Dallas because they were in debt up to their eyeballs and they could never go into ministry because ministry didn't pay enough for them to pay off their schooling. And so I said, um, we're still going to be married. We're not going to have any debt. And then uh, life and ministry doesn't start when I graduate. Life and ministry starts now. And we're going to live every day um, as if – living the way that we would once we're done school. And so uh, th those were the promises that I made, and we just decided that's how we we're going to live. So because of my promise to be debt-free, I worked full-time uh, all the way through seminary, and I tried to take that promise of life and ministry start now into the workplace. Uh, I worked for a dot-com, and that dot-com had core values. And one of their core values, if you can imagine this, was irreverence. And so uh, it wasn't surprising that most people who self-identified as Christians um, uh, had a hard time staying there. And uh, when I first went in, there was a, a lot of pressure on me. As people understood that I was a Christian, it was like, oh man, what are you doing here? Um, I was told that because I was a Christian, I was not cutthroat enough to be in management. I was told that because I wouldn't go to strip clubs with the guys that I um, uh, was not a team player because I wouldn't lie in a sales presentation, then I was never going to be a good salesperson. But I was convinced that I could be a good employee and that I could also be a faithful follower of Jesus. And so I worked really hard at my, my job and my relationships. And one of the relationships that I had um, kind of helped me form a plan for how to, to work with these people. Uh, I was given a new office mate, and I walked in one day, and there was this guy, John. And I don't know why he had a copy of my resume, but he, he had it in his hand, and he looks at me, and he says, Liberty University, huh? And I said, yeah. And he said, um, well, you're going to hate being in an office with me because I'm gay. And at Liberty, they teach people to hate gays. And I said, oh, well, I, I was only there two years. I must have missed that class. Maybe we can go to lunch and I can buy you lunch and, and we can get to know each other. And we went to lunch and somehow during the course of that hour, um, he became a little bit more disarmed and realized that I was going to be nice to him and treat him with kindness. And we actually became good friends. And, and as a result of that, I thought, you know what, that's going to be my tactic. Um, when I face resistance, 
I am going to take people to lunch and I'm going to try to look for some way to connect with them. And I'm going to think of something that they're really good at. And I'm going to call that out over lunch. And I'm going to say, man, I've noticed this about you. And, and I, I sure wish I had that skill. So sure enough, I started taking people to lunch. I took a, um, a guy who was in charge of our finance uh, out to lunch. And I said, man, I, um, I, I was new to Excel, you know, the, and I, I said, I don't know how you do all these formulas. They don't seem to follow like the typical algebra style, but you're amazing at it. Someday I'd love to just pick your brain. Next day he shows up with like three books on how to teach yourself Excel. And literally like I learned Excel because of those three books that that guy dropped off. And over time as I took people to lunch and I engaged them and I said, I've noticed you're really good at this thing. Um, people, began to be disarmed and they began to soften towards me. And, and, um, and so over time, people would interact with me about faith-related things. At, at the time, uh, the Left Behind series was on the New York bestsellers list. And so they would say, hey, uh, I read that book and, you know, airplanes falling out of the sky. Can, can you talk to me about that? I was like, sure, let's go to lunch. And so we'd go to lunch. And um, uh, I, I felt like it all kind of paid off. When September 11th happened and uh, the towers came down, for the next nine hours, um, I was fielding phone calls and, and really uh, for several more days afterwards, all these people that I had worked with were calling me saying, hey, wh where is God in pain and suffering? Where is God in tragedy? Where is God? And, and they were, they I had built a relationship with them. I had this opportunity to talk to them. And, and so I left that job with this sense of absolute joy because I had seen people respond to the gospel in me. Well, the next job that I had um, was an environment even more um, hostile towards Christianity. It was a pure sales organization, and, and it was notorious for hiring people uh, who only had one motivator in their entire life, and that is greed. And they would uh, encourage, especially us as managers, um, buy bigger houses, buy more expensive cars. They wanted to keep us in debt so that we would constantly be striving to make more money so that we could make more money for the company. And so um, as I came in, uh, I'm talking to my employees and I'm, I'm talking about kind of my mantra, which is um, faith and family and, and work. And, and the other managers are just shaking their head like, oh, this guy's not going to In fact, several of them placed bets on how long I could make it. I remember the CEO flying in from Boston and, and we got to talking and in a very short amount of time, he just said, hey, I heard you're a seminary student. And I I said, yes, I am. And he said, if I had known that, I would have made sure that we never hired you. And I said, okay. Um, and he's like, yeah, if you take that stuff too seriously, you'll never be a decent salesperson. And so from then on, he was like, he would call me out. Um, and we'd be talking in a group of managers and he'd be like, well, let's ask the Bible thumper. And, and he would point at me. And uh, there was one dinner where, where all the managers from Austin and Houston and Dallas were all together at a dinner. And so I'm way down the other end of the table. And he yelled, Hey, Reverend, why don't you pray for us in Latin? And he laughed and he thought that was, you know, really funny. I worked there for two and a half years. And for two and a half years, I did everything I could to be a good employee, to be a good Christ follower, to build like relationships, to try to take people to lunch, to try to do all the things that I had done in the previous job. And after two and a half years, I left the job really discouraged because I felt like I had not seen any result or any fruit 
for my effort. We live in a pretty irreligious area, right? Um, if I had to guess, if you've ventured to try sharing your faith at work, um, uh, you've either hit indifference or maybe even hostility or resistance. And, and um, if you're like I was, if you see no result in sharing your faith, then um, you begin to look and go, man, I, I don't know if I want to do that. There's no joy in it because I didn't see any results. For some of you, it's not the lack of results, but it's a, a, a feeling of self-doubt because, because there's no results. Um, and you go, man, I just must be a really bad messenger. Um, other people, you, the, the opposition and, and the hostility is enough to stop you in your tracks. And you're just tired of feeling humiliated when you share your faith. People look at you like you're back or they say, man, I can't believe you need God as, as some sort of crutch. And so we begin to walk through our Christian experience and, and we look at it and we go, well, we can't possibly find joy in the sharing of the gospel. I mean, sure, we're encouraged when people come into our church and they get saved and we throw a big party and we do baptisms and, and everybody looks at that and goes, this is awesome. This is the best thing we do, right? I mean, when we baptize people and we celebrate that, everybody's super excited, but nobody looks day to day and says, um, the thing that's going to bring me joy is the sharing of my faith. And so we begin to look for joy in other good things, right? Good things relationships or um, experiences or the blessings that God gives us materially. And then we wonder why it is that our lives look pretty much like everybody that we work with. It's because we're looking for joy in the same things that they're looking for joy. We have become idolaters and we're not finding joy in the thing that Christ has created us to find joy in, in him alone and, and in calling other idolaters away from those lesser happinesses and and to true joy and to God's presence and and to lay those things aside. And so as we were wrapping up last week, we read Philippians 1.18 and said that Paul took great joy in seeing the gospel go forward. I think this week we're we're gonna take the next step and we're gonna see that joy for Paul was and it didn't matter if it was in hardship or in pain, joy for Paul was found in two things. It was found in the proclamation of the gospel and in the providence of God. And so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start, we're going to overlap with last week, we're going to start with verse 18. Um, and and uh, it says, let's see if I can get the slide to go. Philippians 1.18 says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so Paul begins talking about the fact that he finds joy in the proclamation of the gospel. And part of how he's able to find joy in the proclamation of the gospel is he says it doesn't matter whether in pretense or in truth. That is, it doesn't matter who the messenger is or what their motives are. What matters is the message itself. And so, so I can have joy in the proclamation of the gospel, understanding that it's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And then he says that, that uh, even suffering can bring this satisfaction. And, and ultimately, death can bring deliverance. He says, yes, I will rejoice that through the, your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance. When, when he says this will turn out for my deliverance, he's, he's quoting um, straight out of Job. In, if, uh, in, in uh, the Hebrew scripture was translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, uh, somewhere end of the first century. But the phrase that he uses, turn out for my deliverance, is exactly the phrase that Job uses in Job 13. Job 13, it says, though he slay me, I will trust him. And this will turn out for my deliverance. This will be my salvation. And, and we, as a culture, we tend to hear that, that, first, that first sentence, though he slay me, I will trust him. And we are kind of overwhelmed and stunned by the idea of if God slays me, I will trust him. And we, we look and go, man, that's the amazing thing. But the, the Hebrew people, as they read that, they understood and they knew the, the book of Job and they knew his story and they knew where it was going. And they knew that that was just kind of like the beginning statement. When somebody said, though he slay me, I will trust him. It would, it would be like you heard the first few notes on the radio and you heard when the night has come and the land is dark, and the moon is the only light I see, right? You, you immediately know what's coming. There's a chorus coming that says, stand by me. When they heard, though he slay me, I will trust him, and this will turn out for my deliverance, that was the beginning of the song. And where it was leading was, for I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last, um, he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in the flesh, right? And so they knew that this was building to a chorus of my Redeemer lives, and I will see God in the flesh. And so when, when Paul quotes this, you understand that, that he is, is talking, he's, he's referring to a story that cap, like, immediately it captures their mind, and they go, oh, I know where this is going. And so he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And, and they, they understand he's saying, though he slay me, I will trust him. And he's looking ahead and saying, my redeemer lives and I know I will see him in the flesh. And it says, and it is my eager expectation and uh, hope that I will not be ashamed. Um, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And three times he uses the word to talk about body or flesh. In my body, whether by life or death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is, though he slay me, I will trust him, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means uh, fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh. And so three times he, he uses for emphasis to, to say, look, I, I'm referring back to Job saying, in the flesh, I will see God, right? To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so as you go through that, you go, okay, we, we understand exactly what it is that he's saying. And he's saying, um, uh, for, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so he is, is pointing us to the fact that, that we are not going to be ashamed, that, that we have no reason to be ashamed, that, that we can have joy in, um, uh, 
the proclamation of the gospel because we know two things. One is it's not about the message. It's about, I mean, it's not about the messenger. It's about the message, but also that, that suffering can bring satisfaction. And so he, he looks at Job and says, um, uh, in the same way that Job suffered and ultimately it brought joy, I can suffer now because ultimately it will bring joy. But he also says that he finds joy in the providence of God and, and that it is not about, um, whether he, he is disgraced. It is about whether Jesus is glorified. He says, um, uh, let's see if I can find this here. Um, uh, I apologize. Here it is in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that I will not um, be ashamed, but with full courage now as always, that Christ will be honored. He, he says, look, I, I, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be, it's not about, I don't want to be humiliated. It's that in, in, I don't want to hold back and feel like the way that people treat me matters because what really matters is whether Christ is honored in my body, whether from in life or in death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so as he's talking about finding joy in the providence of God, he says, look, it's not, um, it, it doesn't matter if we're disgraced. It matters about whether Jesus is glorified. But he also understands that there's more to this life than this life, right? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He, basically, death is the best thing. I don't know um, what kind of conversations you had with your kids, but all, with all four of my boys, um, there was a point somewhere around three years old where they understood this verse, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I had almost an identical conversation with each of them as they were growing up. And the conversation went like this. So daddy, if I run out into the street, I might get hit by a car and then I'll die. Right. And if I die, I would go to Jesus. Right. But I want to go to Jesus, so shouldn't I go out in the street? <laughs> um, it, it was like they they were able to rationalize that it's better to be with him than to be here. And then I had to explain to them why it's necessary that they stay. And he says this, if I am in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall choose. I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed man, what I want is to go and be with him. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ because that is far better. But if I remain in the flesh, uh, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on my account, like on, uh, because of my fear, because I'm worried about facing God. No, that's none of that. It's more necessary on your account. I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and for your joy. Joy in the providence of God comes not just from saying, hey, it doesn't matter if I'm disgraced. It matters if he's glorified. But it also comes with saying, there's more to this life than this life. And part of that is, yes, death is, is far better because I get to be with him. But being with you is necessary. Why? Because of your joy, not because of my joy. Like it's, it, We are not to make this the place where we find all of our joys, but this is the place where we lead other people to joy. And so um, he says that that he's able to trust in God's God's um, providence because ultimately this will turn out for their joy, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming again. 
I don't know if any of you have ever read uh, any of the um, biographies or bibliographies of um, uh, Adoniram Judson. Um, he was the first missionary that was sent out of the U.S., and he was sent to Burma. And when he was sent to Burma, he left with his wife, and they had these plans of how they were going to uh, translate the Bible and different things. And um, at the end of 14 years in Burma, which uh, more than a year of it he had spent in jail, at the end of 14 years, years, all he had to show for his work was just a handful of believers and uh, a grammar that he had written of the Burmese language. And his wife and his children had died. And he looked at the work of his hands and thought, what am I doing? And he literally was telling God, I just want to die. But he would not allow himself to, to completely go into despair because his wife and his children had specifically prayed that God would allow him to live because there was so much illness, malaria and different things that were killing people. There was so much illness that, that they prayed that he would live until he had the Bible fully translated and that he had built a church of a hundred believers because they believed that if, if we just had a hundred believers in the church, we could reach the whole nation of Burma. And so that, that was their prayer, that, that God would allow him to live until the Bible was fully translated and until there was a hundred people that were, were uh, part of this church. So for the next 33 years, he continued to labor. And at the end of 33 years, the Bible was fully translated. There was a little church of a little over 100 people. There were missionaries coming in from other places. And just before Adoniram Judson died at 61 years old, he wrote this. He said, if I had not felt certain <clears throat> that every trial, not only did he bury his, his wife and kids, but in those 33 years, he had two more wives that he buried. If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy. I could not have um, survived and accumulated sufferings. Here was a guy who understood that there is more to this life than this life. And he could trust in God's providence because he knew that it wasn't about his glory. It was about Christ's glory. And it wasn't um, about uh, sufferings in this life. And he could look and say, there's more to this life than this life. And so I can trust in, in God's uh, providence. And so as Paul writes this, he says, um, only let your manner of life. And, and he begins to turn it towards us. And he says, hey, this is me. I find joy in the, in the proclamation of the gospel, and I find joy in the providence of God. And, the, and now I'm going to point you to how to find joy. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It's let, let your administration of your affairs reflect the glad tidings that, that Christ is risen. Let, let the, your, the manner of your life, the, just the way that you live, the way that you walk, the way that everybody sees you, let it reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of what, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as he shifts into this He's using military language, and he says, um, I, I want to hear that you are standing firm. You've taken ground, and you're holding that ground. You are not backing down. 
You are unified. You are in one body. You are striving side by side. You are in lockstep with each other. And he says, and not frightened in anything. And it's, he's not talking about somebody who panics and runs off the, the uh, battlefield. He's, he's talking about, he, this is a word that they would use um, to talk about a skittish horse. Um, and they didn't have big explosions and things like that in battles. But there would be loud clanging as shields hit, as swords hit. And sometimes a skittish horse, you wouldn't be able to control it. It would just bolt from the noise. And he says, I don't want you to bolt. I don't want you to take off. I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we live in joy and pain, when we live in joy and hardship, when we stand in unity with each other in the hardest of times, when we strive together, no matter how bad it gets, this is a clear sign to people that they go, wow, I don't have that. There's something they have. There's, there's life that they have that I don't have. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. But it is also an encouragement. As Christians look and they go, we're side by side. We're locking arms. We're staying on this ground. We're not frightened. We don't have to worry. And we have joy in this hardship. Then it is a clear sign of our salvation. And we know I have confidence that God will take me through this because God is taking me through this now. He says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but suffer. We talk often about the gift of God is Jesus Christ, right? The, the gift of God is grace and faith. And the gift of God is that we are raised with Christ. And the gift of God is that, that we have an inheritance. And the gift of God is redemption. And we look and we go, God's gift of belief, we totally understand. But when he says, here's God's, what God's granted you. Here's what he's gifted you. Here's what his, he, how he has graced you. He has graced you not only that you should believe, but he has given you suffering as a gift, as a grace. He has granted it to you as, as something that you should rejoice in. He has given you suffering as a gift. And we go, what is that about? And, and I, I think when uh, he says this, it's we, we don't understand what suffering is happening, what suffering is doing in our lives if we can't see the gift that it is. When, when C.S. Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain, he, uh, he said um, that, that uh, these sufferings that we have, these trials that we have, God has given them as a gift to shape our souls. And he says, I'm progressing along a path in my ordinary, contentedly fallen, godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting and, and, and with my friends for the, tomorrow or a bit of work that tickles my fancy today, a holiday, a new book, and suddenly a stab of abdominal pain threatens some serious disease, or the headlines in the newspaper threatens all of us with destruction, and it sends the whole pack of cards tumbling down. And at first, I'm overwhelmed. All of my little happinesses look like broken toys. And then slowly and reluctantly, I try to bring myself into that frame of mind I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never meant to possess my heart that my true good is in another world and my only treasure is in Christ. And perhaps by God's grace, I succeed. And for a day or two, I become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole entire nature leaps back to the toys. 
And thus the terrible necessity of suffering is only too clear. God has made, had me for just 48 hours, and then only by dint of taking everything away from, him, from me, let him but sheath that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can, and I race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed, and that is why tribulation and suffering cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is helpless. And he goes on to say, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. He shouts in our pain. And pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Suffering for the gospel is God's gift to you. Because not only is it shaping your soul, but it is reminding you that Jesus suffered so that one day you would be free from all suffering. Joy is found in the proclamation of the gospel, and joy is found in the providence of God, both for Paul and for us. And so as we, um, as we are looking at this passage, we have to ask ourselves, if it's found in the proclamation of the gospel, how do we remain silent? If it is found in the providence of God, including pain and persecution and suffering, how do we embrace suffering as a gift? We can find joy in sharing our faith, and we can find joy in suffering for our faith. And that joy affects the way that we share, and it affects the way that we suffer. Winsome, joy is a, uh, a winsome magnet that draws people in, because ultimately it's something that they don't have that we have. And so joy for the Christian, according to Philippians, searching for joy and place to find it, is found in the proclamation of the gospel and is found in trusting in the providence of God. And so as we invite you to embrace joy, we're not just embracing, asking you to embrace some um, slogan, some feel good. We're asking you to embrace two things, finding joy where Paul says we can find it, in sharing the joy that we have with other people, and in trusting that in all the hardest time, God is working. And God even has given suffering as a gift. God has given you these gifts, and he is calling you to embrace them. And as you embrace them, you will be embracing joy. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, there are certain things in your word that are counterintuitive, that they are paradoxes that we have a hard time getting our mind around. The idea of dying to live, it's a paradox. We don't get it. The idea of suffering to find joy, it's a paradox. We don't get it. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you are calling us to understand these things. And you are calling us to be able to say with Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. And I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last day, he will stand upon the earth, and though my skin is destroyed, I will see God in the flesh. Lord, I, I pray that we will be so confident in your future presence, so confident in the work that you're doing, so confident in your providence that we can find joy even in suffering. Lord, we trust you, and we ask these things because we believe they're according to your will, so we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.